One of you is about to become our new Miss Universe. If for any reason she is unable to fulfill her duties, the first runner-up will take her place. Good luck to both of you. Miss Universe 2015 is Columbia! Okay, folks. Uh, There's, I have to apologize. The first runner-up is Columbia. Miss Universe 2015 is Philippines. Listen, folks, let me just take control of this. This is exactly what's on the card. I will take responsibility for this. It was my mistake. It was on the card. Horrible mistake. Yo, Taylor, I, I'm really happy for you. I'm gonna let you finish. But Beyonce had one of the best videos of all time. One of the best videos of all time. Oof. Both of those videos feel like forever ago, and I know I've seen them a million times, but for some reason, still, both a little rough to watch. Why is that? Also, based on everything I know, which admittedly isn't very much, I should interpret the following sequence from Pixar's Inside Out as complete random nonsense, but I don't. In fact, I find it very relatable. I'm going to play it back, and why don't you see if you've ever had a similar dream? She has one bad address. Of your final grade, I want to introduce our new student, Riley. Would you like to stand up and introduce yourself? And you, Riley. My name is Riley Anderson. I'm from Minnesota, and now I live here. Ew, look, her teeth are falling out. That's gross. Teeth falling out. Yeah, I'm used to that one. Let me guess, we have no pants on. Hey, look, she came to school with no pants on. Called it. God, I love that movie. Hello, world. What is up? Welcome to the Feelings Lab. I'm your host, Matt Forte, and for today's episode, we're talking about embarrassment. I don't know about you, but I personally have no shortage of embarrassing moments to share. I legitimately thought Alaska was an island, and I was, let's see, 10, 11 years ago this might have been. I was in my mid-20s. I was way too old. I should not have thought that. But I did, and I proclaimed it confidently to a room full of strangers. 
Uh, but today, I'm curious to explore not just those moments. I'd really like to get into the power of embarrassment, how it can cause one person to pull back, retreat, and shut down completely while others can harness it and maybe even build a career out of it. Uh, also, why is it something that typically makes us want to curl into the fetal position and cease to exist is also the funniest thing in the world, as long as it's happening to somebody else. Embarrassment is steeped in nuance, and as per usual, I've got probably too many questions. Uh, thankfully, here I sit, the luckiest podcast host alive, because joining me once again from my incomparable team of experts, Dr. Alan Cowan is here, and of course, Dr. Decker Keltner. Gentlemen, welcome back. Thank you, as always. Uh, but that's not all. Joining us in the lab here, we are super lucky to have this week, Jessica Tracy is here, a professor of psychology at the University of British Columbia, whose work has been featured by the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, and ABC's Good Morning America. Uh, welcome, Jessica. Thank you for being here as well. Uh, and last, but certainly not least, you've seen her on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, a little late with Lily Singh. She was the host of Build Brunch, was named one of New York's funniest in 2019, and can currently be seen alongside Ron Funches and Brian Posehn on True TV's half-hour comedy, Top Secret videos. She's genuinely one of the smartest, funniest people I've ever had the privilege to work with, and I am so excited that she's made time to be here with us today. Join me in welcoming the supremely talented Allie Colbert. Allie, thank you for being here, too. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. That was such a nice introduction. Wow. Thank you very much. Well, you did all the stuff I said. I so guess so. You. I'm so uh, good. Making it easy. <laughs> uh, thank you, everyone. I'm super excited to dive into this one today. I've jotted down. I've gotten into the habit of just writing a couple of questions before we get started, and this is no different. Uh, and, and I'm super curious about this topic and a couple of things. We don't have to answer all of these directly. I just want to plant some seeds and get it out there. One of the things I wrote down, uh, why do we find other people's embarrassing moments funny? So we'll get to that at some point, I hope. I want to talk about self-consciousness, like who are people? who aren't embarrassed by crazy things that they do? And is there something fundamentally wrong with them? No judgment. I just want to know. Uh, and how has the emotion changed across history? You know, are people more self-conscious now? Are they less self-conscious? Are they more embarrassed, less embarrassed? These are things that I was thinking about that I want to get into. We'll see what happens. If we answer them, great. If we don't, I'm fine with that too. I'm just happy we're all here. Uh, last week, Decker, you recommended we kick things off by defining the emotion. And I really dug that. I thought that was great. Uh, I was hoping we'd be able to do that again. And so I ask, how does one define embarrassment? Well, I'd almost look to Jess Tracy, but I'll offer one definition sure. and see what Jess says, because Jess has spent a lot of time thinking about self-conscious emotions. Um, it's a feeling of uh, sort of self-criticism when you violated a rule that makes you lose status in the eyes of other people. Hmm. Okay. I, what do you think, Jess? I, yeah. I would agree with that. Um, I guess the caveat I would add is that embarrassment differs from other self-conscious emotions like shame or guilt, and that I think it typically has to happen, maybe always has to happen for something that we do in public, right? That okay. is to say, you get embarrassed because you yeah. had some sort of mishap or transgression and other people saw it happen, and that's kind of critical. Interesting. So does that mean if I'm ever embarrassed on my own and there's nobody else around, if I've done something that I, I feel like I can't believe I just did that, am I really experiencing shame more than I am embarrassment in that moment? You know, I would say that if you're experiencing embarrassment, it's probably because you're thinking about how other people would react if they knew about it. Maybe you're even thinking about telling someone later because it's so funny and you're willing to sacrifice that feeling of embarrassment for the humor of the story, which I think we often are because embarrassment it's, it's not the most fun emotion, but it's also not the most painful. And I think we can derive some pleasure from it. Um, but yeah, I would say that if it's really something no one will ever know, you don't ever plan to tell anyone, I would find it uh, hard to believe that you're truly embarrassed about it. 
Interesting. Ali, on Twitter and in your comedy, you frequently, you know, you talk about anxiety, embarrassment and your experiences and all that. And I'm curious, were you always able to, to create out of this emotion or is that something uh, that you've been sort of honing over time? Because I do know people that are that find it debilitating, that they can't move if they're embarrassed. They cringe physically and things of that nature. But you almost thrive with embarrassment <laughs> and, and you're so articulate in how you talk about embarrassment. How did that come to you? Well, it's interesting. The first, I would say, five Five years of doing stand-up, I was in the closet. And mm. that was a secret I had that the kind of real nuances of things I was feeling um, and emotions that I could have played with, I was opting not to on stage because I was performing and I was pretending to an extent. And once I became comfortable with my sexuality and I started uh, coming out, then I was able to harness the humor in those moments. But for a while, I was lying to myself, and I didn't get to use all of that material. So that's the one thing that comes to mind when I think about some embarrassing, what I call embarrassing stories I, I tell about my childhood that I am only like recent years, last like, you know, 10 or so years bringing into the light as opposed to my like early stand-up career. That's interesting. So basically there's like this whole other world that kind of opened up once you were uh, uh, open and once you came out and once you were able to be yourself, that kind of like opened a door for you. Were those things, those new things that you were able to talk about, had you thought about them before, but you were like, no, that's off limits. That'll give away too much. Like it just, you didn't want to go there. You weren't ready to go there. Or were they things you didn't even think about until after you had come out and you were finally able to, you know, experience and be your true self? Well, it, it were, they were just things that living in them were were too painful for me to see the humor, but then separating, you get how funny it is. Like I do a joke on stage about how um, my friends would, we would always watch the television show Friends and we would ask each other which character we, we would be. And it was like a playful game between my friends and I, but always I had the biggest crush on Jennifer Aniston. And in the back of my head, I was always like, I guess I'm Gunther, but I didn't want to, <laughs> I didn't, never wanted to say that. And I didn't even connect the dots as clearly, but that it became so empowering when I didn't care because it's the, the truth is like, is the funniest. Yeah. If that, if that answers your question. It, it, it totally does. Um, <laughs> Jessica and Dagger, uh, I'm curious to hear from you guys why it is that we find other people's embarrassing moments and embarrassing uh, stories so funny. Where, where does that come from? Dagger, do you want to chime in? I mean, Fire away, you know, Jess. the one thing I was going to say about Ali's story, which is great, is that I think um, we really do need to be open about who we are, about our sense of self in order to feel embarrassment. That is to say, to feel embarrassment because it's a self-conscious emotion, what that means is that we're focusing on ourself, our real self, right? And um, that's why we feel embarrassment is because we're sort of thinking, oh gosh, this is who I am and other people are looking at me and noticing this thing about me and I don't like that. And when we're really busy protecting ourselves and we don't want other people to notice this thing about me, whatever it is, then we are protecting ourselves from embarrassment, but we're also preventing a lot of really valuable social interaction, right? We're sort of avoiding that connection that people get when um, we can, when they, when they see us for who we really are, when they identify with us. And Ali's story is super funny, I think, because, you know, we can all sort of 
identify with it, right? We can all sort of say, oh yeah, like that makes total sense. You know, she's a woman and she sees herself as Gunther because she had a crush on uh, Jennifer Aniston. Like that's really charming and cute. And if she, you know, if she's hiding that, then we lose this connection with her that otherwise yeah. we would have. Mm. You know, it's interesting. I'm thinking about uh, when we were talking about awe in last week's episode, Alan, you brought up um, sort of the communal aspects of awe and how it brings people together. And now we're talking here about embarrassment, about how uh, we we can all connect and relate and find common ground. And uh, I'm curious if that's something you see across a lot of the emotions that even if we find them very personal and a very unique experience to me, is it actually something that uh, is, is bonding us all and binding us all? And that's kind of evolutionarily speaking, like why we all experience it the way we do. Yeah, I mean, a good sign that something is intended for social organization or for social signaling is that it has an expression that goes with it. And I think uh, embarrassment, um, actually, the, the people, two of the people who have sort of characterized what the expressions that go with embarrassment are on this podcast. But um, you have, so I feel a little bit silly explaining it to them, but you have <laughs> uh, the You can explain it to me all day, buddy. <laughs> um, where you kind of tilt your head down, touch your face, cover your face, kind of um, conceal yourself a little bit from public view. Could There's you that, that element of it. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> I'll probably do it by by accident. Uh, there's the blush. Obviously, that's a really, really characteristic signal. And the funny thing about the blush is we can't control it. Um, and uh, the more we realize that we're blushing, right? The more we realize we're blushing, the more people are staring at us. The more we realize they they recognize we're embarrassed, and then it gets worse. Um, and so those characteristic signals. And then there's the vocalization of embarrassment, which can happen in a lot of different ways. There's sort of an awkward kind of. It's really hard to uh, for me to imitate it. Maybe somebody else here can do it. But uh, there's an awkward kind of nervous <laughs> laugh. Yeah, yeah. hesitancy. Um, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that was awesome. Um, <laughs> there it is. Yeah. Well done. Well done. Um, and that means that you know somebody is is there to hear it and uh it's often involuntary and it, it's a it's a signal that we've violated social norms we realize it and we're trying to be we're trying to compensate um we're we're acknowledging it um as much as we want to avoid attention at the same time all of the behaviors that we're performing involuntarily are drawing people's attention um but at the same time it's letting people know that we feel bad in some way um and so it's this uh honest indicator of you know embarrassment of it, the fact that you violate a social norm and you recognize it and, and it allows people to come together um, and release that tension how long you know one of the things that that kickstarted this whole podcast series was looking at the maps down that you've been building and, and what hume's done how long did it take you to sort of measure all of these different pieces of embarrassment and, and quantify all these different things. How do you get a, a genuine response out of somebody when you're trying to collect data in a lab? How do you make them, how do you trigger embarrassment? Yeah, so there's two elements of it. One is to make people experience embarrassment and then try to measure the signal of it that's involuntary. And that's really tough um, because people don't like to express embarrassment. Um, but Dacker's work is one of the you know earlier um, efforts to do that, so he had you know da I'll let Dacker explain <laughs> his initial yeah, studies. Actually, no shortage of ways to embarrass people in the lab. In fact, just stepping into the labs embarrassing uh, for a lot of people. You know, you um, we startled people unexpectedly. You know, bam, 
And they're like, whoa. And they, oh, I think I wet my pants. And off you go. You think you're embarrassed. They've had people um, sing songs and then get videotaped and have them watch that videotaped rendition of a song in front of what other people. What a horrible thing to do to somebody. <laughs> I didn't do that. Jess Tracy did that, I think. So, it's so painful. Uh, no. You know, oh, no, it's, I didn't. It's interesting. Embarrassment. I thought that was so, you, you know, and it's this, it's this sense of like, wow, I'm not playing by the game of social life. Yeah. You can even embarrass people by giving them too much positive attention. Uh, some mm-hmm. people get embarrassed when I'm they're... I'm very used to that. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so there are a lot of ways to do it, both more uh, mischievous and, and benign. And, and then you look at what the signal looks like, as Alan described, as one part of the equation. What just, because I have the attention span of a hummingbird, what just happened to me when you were describing that experiment? And I like physically, I wouldn't say cringed, but like I felt like, oof, I would hate to have to do that. Where you say, oh, we videotape them singing and then we make them watch it. Why, why did I have that response? And maybe I'm asking way too personal a question and this is no longer about emotion and it's just about me, but I, I, I have the microphone. Why, why did I feel that way? What was that? Is that secondhand embarrassment? Well, is there, that cringe? Yeah. I mean, there, there are these, you know, it'd be great to hear Ali talk about contagious emotion from a comedian standpoint. You know, there are great studies showing if I blush, my friends around me blush. So Jess and Ellen would blush. If I get embarrassed, they start getting embarrassed because part of our identity is collective, right? Part of it is yeah. like, we're all together. I made a mistake and the people around me are feeling that sense of mortification. And um, and it's really, it's one of the great mysteries of, of why that's so powerful. Um, and some people, some there's actually a measure of your blush proneness where some people are so blush prone. Not only do they blush when other people blush, they blush if someone on television makes a mistake. They even blush like if they hear the word blush. <laughs> They're yeah. like, oh my God, I'm blushing. That's so, it. you know, it's uh, it tells us how linked we are in, in our emotional lives. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned a great idea, which I, I'm curious to hear from Ali as well, uh, talking about like contagious emotion, what you've sort of learned and observed in, in your years, like in the trenches doing sets and working with crowds and learning to kind of steer a crowd in the direction you want it to go? Um, well, where that comes up for me mainly is in crowd work. Um, and I used to, when I started doing crowd work, I would be um, too aggressive and too mean with the crowd. And <laughs> if you make one person uncomfortable, the audience picks up on that and there's a collective shutdown that happens where they all say, no, 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 you're not nice. Um, you're not getting it. We're not liking this. And then you lose the crowd. So mm-hmm. something I'll, I'll do in my sets now is if someone laughs and they're laughing like out of sync or something like that, I always point to them and I say, oh, I love you. And the audience becomes like so endeared to the fact that I'm like giving them verbal affection and they like you're really going on like a date with the crowd and they're such a hive mind like and getting them on your side and winning them over right off the bat and um yeah i i mean even last night i this one woman interrupted my set and i wasn't in the best mood and i overstepped a little i like yelled at her a little too much and i (laughs) i had to do like a good few minutes of recovering and like justifying why i did that and then you win them back over but they really, um, they, they kind of ride emotional waves together. Yeah. 
Is that scary or is that really exciting when you're in that position where you know you've got to fight to get them back and you've only got a certain amount of time to do it? Um, well, you know, I think I've done enough stand-up where I don't feel super uncomfortable and I'm okay with a yeah. certain, you know, I'm okay with if a set doesn't uh, go as, as expected. But there is something kind of even more, you're even almost more present when, it, when you're tanking um, because you feel, you know, my heart is like on the line and I have the adrenaline going um, as opposed to feeling so comfortable. You like that discomfort um, is kind of exhilarating. Has that, because you kind of alluded to this just now, has that gotten easier with that comfort? Because I think it was Alan, you mentioned last week that like, you know, repeated exposure to the stimuli over time, your brain doesn't fire the same synapses. And like, for me, I embarrass myself almost daily. I do something, even last week on this show, I said that we aren't primates to a bunch of scientists and doctors. <laughs> and all of you were super polite and didn't correct me. But then I was editing it and I was like, wait. And then I Googled it because that's the level I'm at just to make sure. I was like, oh no, we are 100% our primates. And none of them said anything. Uh, so it happens to me all the time and I'm always embarrassed. But so have, have you sort of developed, I mean, like the term is like a thicker skin, but I hate to say that, but like, has that happened for you, Ali? Where like now it's like, you know, that road. So if you are tanking and trying out new stuff, it's not as hard as it used to be. Yeah, totally. I've like yeah. numbed down my uh, like emotional response to being in front of people in that way to the point where I remember when I first started doing sets that I would like think about a set three days in advance and I would just be taught, like my stomach would be in knots over it. And yeah. I will go up now and I'm not even sure what I'm going to do until I'm on stage. And that's just like reps and reps and reps. That's amazing. Um, In that similar vein, Alan, Dacker, Jessica, has your personal experience with embarrassment changed as you've studied it more and become more knowledgeable in the area? Yeah, I mean, the the first thing, you know, um, Jess and I early in the career before people like Alan were figuring out how to code emotions automatically based on big data, Jess and I labored in the lab and spent hundreds of hours, you know, I spent hundreds of hours coding videotapes of embarrassment. And I became convinced, like Jane Austen, the writer and others, that embarrassment's a, a layer of all of social life. We're always teetering on the verge of embarrassment, showing our remote, you know, our uh, sense of uh, mortification. And that's because embarrassment's about playing, playing the game with others, right? Uh, and it made me really, um, it made me. Uh, love human beings more that they are constantly showing these signs that I care about what you think of me. You know, studying it for a long time is, is as we say in science, confounded with the fact that I, I am getting older. And we've actually had findings where, you know, old as you get older, you're not as worried about embarrassing yourself and you wear the wrong clothes and you fart in the grocery line and you know you teach with your zipper down and it's like it's all good you know so i mean uh so that's it's actually free i love this i love this little window into what your elder years are going to be like Man, I can't thank wait. you yeah. and, and and you know Ali spoke to it like once you allow yourself to bear yourself to other people and you feel that lighthearted freedom, it's it's nice. So as I've learned, as I've studied it, I've I've seen it so in such rich ways in other people that's that says something nice about their character. Yeah. Jessica, how about you? 
Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think it's so interesting because when you think about embarrassment sort of abstractly, I think we think, oh, it's a negative experience. I don't want to feel embarrassed. Yeah. But I remember learning probably from Dacker, who was one of my teachers back in grad school, that embarrassment actually is a positive emotion. And I really think that's true for all the reasons that, that he's been saying and Ali's been saying, you know, which is to say it connects us to other people. If we can get ourselves over the fear of it, right? The fear is not good. You, you know, worrying about mm. embarrassment. My 12-year-old daughter mm. spends way too much time doing that. And it's, mm. you know, terrible for her. But um, if we can get over that part of it and just allow ourselves to say that, hey, you know what? Sometimes we do things that make other people laugh at us, but it also connects us to them, right? The reason is we send that social signal that Alan was talking about. It's appeasing, right? Yeah. It makes us likable, essentially. That's, that's really the purpose of it. And so all it does is build relationships. Um, so it's, it is a positive emotion in that way, I think. Interesting. Yeah. Why does it feel so terrible in the moment is the question. <laughs> and I even armed with that knowledge. I know like there's a story that I was going to share from when I was a kid and I don't even know. I only hold on to this memory because it was so traumatic for me when I was so little. And it's such a stupid kid thing. But essentially the, the shortest version of this story is I was the youngest of two, my I, an older brother. He didn't play any sports and I played soccer. Right. So I was the first one in my family to play a sport or whatever. My dad played trumpet when he was a kid. So mm -hmm. nobody knew anything about how anything works so we go to my first practice and if you're not familiar with how you get ready for soccer you have shin guards they're like little plates like that you put on your shins and they protect they do what they say all right great and so your socks part of your uniform are long enough to fold over your shin guards right no one explains that to you so i went to my first soccer practice with my little short soccer shorts and my shin guard socks pulled all the way up to my thighs so i had lime green thigh high socks essentially and i walked up and i remember getting to the field and i I was nervous just to begin with and then I remember the first kid laughing at me and then I remember it spreading like wildfire like the two kids over here caught it and and while they're laughing you're doing that thing where you're trying to figure out why are they laughing at me and then I realized they're not wearing their socks the way I am and this is decades ago and I remember it like it was yesterday so why is that moment burned into my brain I will forget the names of my own children before I forget about those socks why is that up there so vividly forever I mean, I, I think there's an adaptive reason for that, right? Right. That is is functional to remember that not in this particular case. This is definitely, you know, a, a problematic misfiring because of, you know, the, the way that we evolved. But if you think back to our evolutionary history, we need groups, right? We would not survive. We would not have survived. And we still wouldn't survive if we didn't have people around us, our social groups. And so there's a a lot of our brain is organized toward making sure we don't do things that make those groups want to kick us out and exclude us. And hmm. in this day and age, that's wearing your socks over your shin guards, right? That's, <laughs> that's the thing that's going to make you lose status in your group. A long time ago, you know, who knows what it was? It was making the basket right or you know, having a bad day on a hunt. But whatever that thing is, it's really important that you remember it so you don't do it again so that you stay in that group. Interesting. Okay. And that kind of dovetails into one of the things I wanted to ask is how it's changed over the course of history like what were people uh, in, in terms of what we have documented what we know like are people more embarrassed now are they embarrassed about completely different things like just kind of how has it changed over time 
I think what's happened is that people are putting forward a different ideal self than they used to, and it's really curated through social media, and people are not interacting face-to-face as much. And so when you do interact face-to-face, there's more of a conflict between what you're presenting to somebody and what you present online or how you see yourself, and that can, that can lead to more embarrassment. The fact that there's fewer face-to-face encounters and people don't talk as much with strangers means that they're not as comfortable navigating those awkward situations. And the awkwardness, of course, just arises when you don't know what the social norms are, which means that people are not willing to enter situations in which the social norms are unclear um, as much. So I do think that, and this is, um, you know, not completely, this, you know, it's all very recently studied things. Um, but I, I do think that there is an effective social media here, especially in um, the youngest generation. Um and uh, you start to see that in um, adolescence, especially where, you know, and bar- I think the reason maybe that you remember that story so vividly, Matt, is that in adolescence, you start to, your, your ideal self changes really fast. You start to want to have status. Um, and so anything that really re- reveals that you are actually lower in status than, than the way you want to present yourself mm. is mortifying, right? Um, that becomes less of an issue as you become more secure about your status. Um, but when you're insecure about When's it... When does that happen? <laughs> when, does anybody have a window of time that I could look forward to when that'll arrive? I think as Daka was saying, it just continues over time. Yeah, okay, got it. Such is the human still, experience. Yeah, I mean, I, I, was gonna, I, I, I don't think from studying embarrassment, my levels of embarrassment have gone down. I think my self-awareness of feeling embarrassment has only gone up, which maybe has made it worse. But um, at least in the moment, I kind of analyze why it is that I'm feeling awkward or embarrassed. And I can identify, oh, well, this is sort of an unclear situation. We don't, this person doesn't know what the norms are. I don't know what the norms are. And then you can kind of get past it. But also yeah. like expressing embarrassment is a good way of getting past it. It's like the ultimate icebreaker yeah. because mm-hmm. it shows that you're not trying to violate any norm. But it comes at the expense, of course, of sort of being submissive, of lowering your status, which is why it's really mortifying if you want your status to be high. Interesting. Yeah, Ali, we talked a little bit about um, how because you've done so much stand-up and, and sort of just been honing that craft, what that's done for how you perceive and, and respond to embarrassment on stage. What about offstage, which is, you know, just being Ali, just out in the world, has that evolved over time because of the work that you've done as a professional, as a comedian? Um, sure. I mean, to a certain extent, <laughs> but... Uh... You know, I'm not on stage. When I'm not on stage, people don't know I'm a comedian. I'm not like turning all of these regular conversations into these like brilliant acts. Like I'm just my raw self. I'm I am thinking though about how a lot of like I had this experience a few weeks ago that was really embarrassing and I would love to share it. Um, I was going to ask if you'd like to share. So <laughs> I had a horrible stomach ache and I was at home alone. And my girlfriend was away for the weekend. And I started to think I had appendicitis. And I was like, I can't drive to the hospital right now. It was, I was in so much pain. I'm going to give you the abridged version. And I texted my, because my parents weren't waking up and I was calling them. I texted my cousins and I was like, I think I'm having appendicitis. (laughs) What should I do? And my aunt like called me and she was like, call 911. I called 911. And I say, I think I'm having appendicitis. And they're like, okay, I guess we'll come get you. Like, I don't think this is their average call. (laughs) I go downstairs as the ambulance is on the way and I fart so loud. (laughs) 
<laughs> and I then have to call. I I then call back nine one one to cancel the ambulance. They don't pick up. So I'm going. I'm standing outside waiting for an ambulance to tell them I farted. And. <laughs> Listen, I've never called like an ambulance before. This is not something I would right. have done. I really, I was like throwing up. This was bad. Anyway, I knew at the time I felt mortified, but I also was kind of smiling to myself because I knew people were going to lose it if I told this story on stage. <laughs> it's got everything. So, it's got I mean, it all. I had to fart. I woke up my extended family and called 911. <laughs> it was humil. It was really bad. At the time, though, I was like, this is so stupid of me. I was like, I'm so stupid. But I couldn't wait to tell it on stage because no one was around me, so I wasn't getting the laugh. I was like, I'm just sitting with right. this alone. <laughs> Um, but then I told it on stage and people are really liking it. In fact, it's my most listened to <laughs> podcast episode, I think, because people are just cringing all the way through. My goodness. First of all, there's an extended version of that story. I need to yeah, hear it immediately. It's, like, it's twists and turns, really. Second of all, thank you for bringing that with you to our podcast. Oh, yeah, of course. I appreciate of course. that. We're going to get the, the Allie Colbert bump uh, now because of that story. <laughs> That's what we've been looking for. Um, that's an incredible story. And thank you for sharing that with yep. us and, and, and bringing that here. And uh, this is a terrible segue. I assure you, it's on my card. It's not because you told a story in which flatulence is involved, but I typically ask Alan about how animals also experience the emotions that we're discussing. So please do not read into that segue totally. whatsoever. <laughs> um, Alan, it is that time of the show where I come to you and ask, uh, what have we observed? What do we know about our friends in the animal kingdom when it comes to regards to embarrassment? Do they experience it? Have we observed that? What do we think? Yeah, this is a tough one as well. Um, I think there's more parallels than last week. <laughs> well, with, uh, with, with any of these emotions, I think one thing that happens when you look at humans is that there's a huge amount of granularity in how we talk about emotion and in what we recognize in expressions explicitly. Um, and there might just be there might be parallels in animals um, at a less granular level. So we make really strong distinctions um, in the literature between, as uh, Dacker and Jessica were saying, between embarrassment and shame and other self-conscious emotions. Um, but you see parallels um, in non-human primates um, to shame, for example, where um, shame, you know, lower status um, and, you know, losing a fight over status is associated with kind of a slumped posture versus like an expanded posture, which would be pride. Um, you see um, also parallels uh, between sort of the laughs that we they're associated with embarrassment, like the nervous laugh and play behavior. You know, so play behavior is um, a time when animals laugh in or, or make it something similar to a laugh often um, to signal their vulnerability, that they're not committed to aggression, right? <laughs> and so the laugh kind of has a similar function when it comes to embarrassment, which is that you're signaling that you're vulnerable, that you didn't mean to violate this norm, et cetera. And you can be forgiven for that. Um, and, and it also, you know, in, in that sense, it's the, the laugh itself, it's sort of, um, it can be a high status laugh or it can be a low status laugh. And you see in humans that we can differentiate those things. Um, I think that to some extent you might see that in um, non-human mammals as well, although um, there's probably more studies that need to be done. But um, 
when it talks when it comes to like mice, uh, you see play behavior is associated with um, laughter, and then uh, probably the 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 mouse that's getting beaten up is the one that's going to be laughing the most, right? Like, okay, like I'm not committed to aggression, let go of me, or, or sort of like in in children, you see that as well. Um, so anyway, that's uh, there's some parallels. I think um, Jess may have uh, Jessica may have better um, examples for embarrassment than I do. No, I was. I mean, I would have said the same thing as you, which is that it, it's. I I personally would argue that I don't think other animals. Mm experience embarrassment maybe some other primates because yes we are a primate i know and, i know now uh, I, you know the other great apes have a lot in common <laughs> with us <laughs> and uh so maybe maybe it's possible i could see something like a chimpanzee or bonobo which have elements of self that we have like they can recognize themselves in the mirror maybe they get embarrassed although i don't know of any evidence yeah. to suggest that they, they they do no one's ever documented it as far as i'm aware but there is a lot of evidence for some sort of submission right. in many many animals right that they right. show these submission of displays which look a lot right. like like when my dog destroys so a box of tissues when my absence and I go what did you do repeatedly <laughs> in a stern tone and his little ears go all the way back and then yeah. I go ah, it's fine you're adorable and I let him get away with it anyway is uh, that I interpret I mean I'm doing the, the thing the yeah. cardinal rule I'm bringing I'm personifying a dog you're not supposed to do that but he looks embarrassed he looks like he knows what he did he looks like he feels bad enough but what what is really happening there in that instance well, yeah, what I would, would say, say he's right. not embarrassed. I would say he dogs are amazingly trainable and they will do anything for a treat. And he knows that if he does those particular behaviors, he will get a treat from you or at least will get you to pet him again and love him again. And so I think it's a pure behavioral learned response in the case of a dog. And that, I say that because dogs don't seem to have a sense of self. If you put a mm. mirror in front of a dog, I don't know if you've ever tried this, go ahead and try it with your dog. They will bark because they think it's another dog. They will look <laughs> yeah. at it like it's another dog. They won't treat it like it's themselves. Whereas with a chimp, something very different happens, right? They actually start saying, oh, you know, how do I look today? You can see the chimp seeing themselves in the mirror. And then and, and any distortion I may do to convince myself that the dog recognizes himself, that's not that's not what's happening. That's not. <laughs> I don't think so. You're telling you me know? to let go of that dream. <laughs> I'm not a dog mind reader, so so you know, who's to say? But I, I don't think so. But, you know, at the same time, I will say dogs are incredibly social. They're probably the most social species there is, more than humans even, because if you think about their ancestors, the wolves, the wolf pack, I mean, it's, it's almost sort of, you know, they are not even separate beings when they're in that pack. They have to be super aware of what every other animal in the pack is doing all the time and so the way in which dogs communicate with humans which is sort of their alpha pack member um is remarkable right and and they're so attuned to everything that we do um and so while it's not a sense of self it's probably not embarrassment there is certainly something going on where they want us to know that they get it and and that they know we're upset with them yeah for sure um we're gonna be wrapping things up in just a second we're coming to the the home stretch here but i had watched in in preparation for a lot of this stuff i went and revisited uh inside out the, the pixar film because well dacker of course you worked on it but just in general it's a it's a great sort of uh you know brush up on the basics as it were and uh well it's just a good movie i don't need to make excuses i enjoy inside <laughs> out anyway the point is i watched it and there's a sequence where riley has a nightmare and it's that classic trope of 
of you're in class and you have no pants on. <laughs> and I'm just curious, uh, you know, we talked about the, the, the uniqueness of each experience and how every individual has it, but also the shared experience. Wh- where do some of these things come from? How do you come upon these universal things? Why does that trope exist? Is that, does that trope exist because of other shows and television and media telling me that that exists? Or is that a phenomenon that we've seen uh, across uh, other primates? I, you know, Did I use that right? Yeah, I mean, that scene yeah. is, well, I mean, that scene is evocative for all of us. And we've all had these exposure dreams or dreams where the people we care about think we're foolish because that's, you know, there's a lot of new work showing that is one of the most universal desires or motivations is to be respected by other people. And embarrassment protects that, right? It When we deviate from the things that allow us to be esteemed by others, and we, we're outside of this community that Jess has described, we show embarrassment, people forgive us, they bring us back in. So that's why that dream is so immediately understandable and why the film is understandable. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's profound and, you know, we, we still have them. Ali, do you find yourself like chasing those kinds of things to speak to, or is it more just about speaking to your personal experience and you find the, the, the more specific you get, the, the wider a net you actually cast? So how does it go when you bring something to a room? Am I searching for embarrassing moments? Is that what your question is? Well, I mean, like, are you trying to find ones that you think are universal or are you just going with what you know? Like, are you looking for your equivalent of the pantsless classroom experience or is it just w- what you've been through personally? Yeah, it's I'm just mining my personal history and yeah. there I have an abundance, as do, does everyone else, of material. And just the more specific I get with how I felt at a specific point in time, the funnier it mm. gets. And mm. yeah, it's it's all it's all humiliating. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever, when you're mining, do you hit any walls these days? And do you say to yourself, like, ah, I don't know if that's going to work or not. And then you try it anyway. Or where, where are your boundaries at this point? Uh, well, something I'm coming up against is that, you know, I I have, uh, it's easier once there's time in between the moment um, and, and when I'm telling the joke. So even yeah. still, when I told that ambulance story here, I still am not over it enough to really kill it. But when I think about something that happened to me 10 years ago, I can really like get in there and amp it up and feel so safe, um, in telling it mm. because my ego has recovered. Um, but uh, I, that's kind of I don't want to only talk about a, a certain time, but I feel like adolescence is just horrifying. Do you often find yourself going, man, I can't wait for five years from right now so I can fully appreciate how funny this is going to be? I mean, it, it, that is that there is truth in that. Like the second I go yeah. through a breakup, I am able to see my ex in a whole different way. And I can do yeah. like a caricature of them and like, oh, I was dating the yoga teacher and she let, whatever it was. But when you're in it, it's harder to like poke fun. Yeah. Uh, what is that? What is it about that distance that makes it easier? Is it exactly what Ali said that the ego is healed? Is is there some sort of evolutionary uh, reflex that our brains kind of like built in to allow us to do that? I defer to you, my experts. Yeah, I mean, 
it's I think it's you know Jessica was talking about these qualities that are unique to the human mind at least as far as we know one is some sort of self-representation a complicated self-representation and then another one is like the ability to put that self in a big long story right mm -hmm. like wow I've been alive you know look what I did in seventh grade and that was 32 years ago or whatever and and that distance is really a miracle in some ways of, of our imagination and it makes things funny you know and that's what yeah. comedians do for us is they're at a distance to us as well right we're listening to Ali's story and we're like man I almost did that and thank god it yeah. wasn't me and it has this wonderful quality to it so um it, it's a it's why we create comedy and and uh find our experiences from the past a little easier to understand Awesome. Well, sorry to say it, but I've got to wrap things up. A huge thank you to my panel, Alan Decker, always a treat. And to Jessica and Allie, thank you for sharing not only your time, but your experience and your perspective with us. I sincerely appreciate it. Everybody out there, be sure to follow Allie if you don't already at Allie Colbert. That's A-L-I-K-O-L-B-E-R-T on Instagram, on Twitter, and on Patreon as well. Uh, Allie, you have some shows coming up. You always have something on the books. Uh, this drops on Mondays. It's going to be out next week. Where can people come see you? perform um yeah i have three shows in new york sunday i'm at new york comedy club i'm at the stand and uh listen to my podcast the ali colbert show the ali colbert show of course uh and for those listening if you like today's show well that's just wonderful how about you go ahead and pay it forward tell a couple of friends maybe you do something crazy like write a review on itunes and leave a couple of stars while you're at it i don't know i don't want to plan out your whole day for you i'm just saying it could be really nice our next episode coming up is Desire with a perfect guest, so you will not want to miss that. If you have any questions you'd like answered or just want to say hi, feel free. Email us at thefeelingslab at hume.ai. It's right down here on the screen. That's T-H-E-F-E-E-L-I-N-G-S-L-A-B at hume.ai. Farewell for now, my friends. From The Feelings Lab, I'm Matt Forte. Thanks again, everybody. Stay safe out there. <laughs>